You're listening to the Health Call Radio Hour, where doctors, researchers, authors, nutritionists, and top health professionals share the latest news about staying well and living better. The information you hear today is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment, but it's always timely, credible, interesting, and best of all, there's never a copay. Now, here's your host, health and wellness correspondent, Lee Kelso. Thank you for joining us. I am so glad you did and grateful to have your attention for a while as we explore whether a new law designed to save you money really is. It's called the No Surprises Act. It's supposed to prevent that gut-wrenching moment after you've had an operation or emergency room care and the bill arrives. That bill's from a doctor who did treat you but was out of network at the time. And now you owe maybe several thousand dollars, far more than you ever guessed. It happened to my wife, and I bet it's happened to many of you. What follows is typically dozens of phone calls as you fight through the confusing bureaucracy that surrounds healthcare today. The pressure on Congress got to be so intense they finally took action in 2022, and the No Surprises Act went into effect. So that was just about a year ago. Lauren Adler is the Associate Director of the USC Brookings Schaefer Initiative for Health Policy. He researches healthcare economics and testified before Congress as they were writing the bill. So how's it all working out? Are you now protected from surprise medical billing? I think, yes, I think consumers, the, the core protections here against surprise out-of-network bills are seem to be working as intended. Um, you know, the, for the sort of core emergency type of services here and in non-emergencies, patients aren't getting the bills. There is, uh, there's at least some data that about 9 million uh, surprise bills have been prevented or haven't happened because uh, the law happened, and that's actually only through September of last year. So, yeah, nine million ugly surprises avoided. That's a that is a big deal. So, let's explain kind of just a big broad brush uh, for folks who really aren't following this that closely. What protections does this provide? What billing surprises does it avoid? Sure. So the there's sort of two buckets of core protections here. So the basic idea is uh, before the No Surprises Act. You could go to the emergency room, even if the, the hospital might be in your insurance company's network, uh, so they have a contract together, the doctors who treat you in that emergency might not have a contract. And when that happens, the, the insurance company will pay something, probably you know roughly market rates for that service, but then the, the doctors can turn around and chart and bill you, the patient, for the difference or the quote unquote balance uh, between their charge, which is sort of like their list price, think like the MSRP on a car or something like that, uh, and what the insurance company paid. And that can often be thousands of dollars uh, that we're talking about. So the emergency is kind of the, the sort of canonical example here, but it also might be you schedule a surgery, uh, you know, a scheduled surgery and the surgeon's in network, the hospital is in your insurance company's network, but the anesthesiologist or the radiologist uh, is not in your insurance company's network. And then the same basic uh, dynamic can happen uh, here. And then the last one is that air ambulances are also, uh, you're also protected from from this sort of surprise out of network bill from air ambulances. Yeah, I get it. So you're, you're on the table. You have no idea whether that anesthesiologist is, is in the network and what he's going to charge you for the service. So I get that. You just count on the system to take care of that for you. And, and that's resulted in an ugly surprise in the past. So 
that's affecting the income of these anesthesiologists, the radiologists, and all those ancillary specialists that might be involved in your care. How do they feel about this? Sure. So it's been a mixed bag. I mean, at the end of the day, so it's the, the law passed at the end of 2020. Uh, at the end of the day, the, the sort of provider trade organizations here uh, at least gave sort of tepid support or most of them gave sort of tepid support for the law. I think there was sort of broad agreement that surprise bills themselves shouldn't be happening. Uh, you know, the other part of this process here is a requirement that the insurance companies make some payment uh, towards the out-of-network anesthesiologist or emergency physician. Uh, and in sort of classic congressional fashion, they sort of kick the can to, they set up this outside arbitration process to sort of determine this for, for them. And that is where some of the disputes are happening. So there's been some legal cases over this. So they're still sort of fighting on that end of things. And obviously that has important ramifications, both for the incomes of anesthesiologists and for patients, right? Because if the doctors are paid more, that means patients are paying more in cost sharing and in uh, and in premiums down the line. So, and employers are paying uh, more for their employees' health care. So that, that part is still, there's still a lot uh, sort of ongoing, uh, you know, fights being happening over that right now. Yeah, good point there. Is is there a sense that this bill has driven up the end cost of a patient's care yet? Do we have any idea on whether that's happening? Honestly, we don't have any great data yet, unfortunately, on this. This is something that folks are looking into. The expectation from bef when the law passed was that it would actually drive down the end cost of care somewhat, basically because this sort of ability to surprise bill or to treat patients who didn't know what your network status is, right? You have no idea whether the anesthesiologist is in your network or not, that that was sort of giving those types of specialists extra leverage. And by taking that leverage away, by passing this law, there could be some salutary effects on healthcare costs. That was the expectation. Um, I think it's unclear exactly what will happen. And there's some legal fights going on in the courts right now that are, I think, trying to work in the opposite uh, direction of, of, of that uh, outcome. So if I go in for a procedure and I do wind up with some wild costs that I didn't expect, what's my recourse as a patient? What do I do? Where do I turn? How do I engage? Walk me through that process. Sure. So the hope is with this law is that the patient shouldn't have to do anything. So I think start there is that the whole idea here is that it will work, right? When you're treated by the out-of-network provider, that all gets dealt with between the provider and the insurance company, and the patient should be none the wiser, right? This is one of these situations where patients had no expectation that this could even happen, right? This sort of sounds absurd mm -hmm. that it could happen. Um, so I, that, that's the hope here. If, however, you do, the patient is getting a bill, really in any emergency situation is getting a bill from an out-of-network provider or any time it's sort of an ancillary specialist, anesthesiologist, radiologist. Um, there is a, there's a CMS hotline and email that you can reach out to, sorry, uh, CMS being the government organization that is uh, sort of administering the program. Uh, and also a lot of states have set up a sort of a similar process to file complaints. Uh, but honestly, your first recourse probably should be to reach out to your insurance company and tell them because this is the insurance company has a fair amount of incentive to follow the law here um, or else face penalties. So uh, often you can sort of bring it to their attention and hopefully you can get a result. But, uh, you know, knowing that there are these backstops to file 
uh, consumer complaints uh, if sort of the right action isn't happening. So if I'm one of those patients who has no insurance and I'm going to pay out of pocket, is there any protection for me in this scenario? Not much, unfortunately. So the the No Surprises Act really is focused on folks with commercial insurance. So people with Medicare, Medicaid, any of the sort of public programs, they were already protected from surprise bills. Um, and folks without insurance, without insurance, unfortunately, um, are still not protected here. There is, there are some provisions that basically, uh, you know, doctors have to give a good faith estimate, quote mm-hmm. unquote, about what the cost of the procedure will be to uninsured patients. And if that good faith estimate ends up being wrong, there is this process to adjudicate what you end up owing as the patient. But that's obviously not quite the same thing as just being protected up front from from this sort of bill. So how about that? Congress seems to have gotten something right, but it's not quite perfect. Lauren Adler at the USC Brookings Schaefer Initiative for Health Policy says once you get to the hospital, yeah, you're probably safe from surprise billing. But if you take an ambulance, well, an ugly surprise is still possible. We'll explain what that means, then look into a growing trend in the big business of health care. Your doctor may not really be in charge anymore because corporations are on a shopping spree. Is that going to be good for your health care? We'll investigate that coming up. But if you're on the go and you can't stay tuned, you can always catch the podcast of today's show on all the major services. An extended video version is available on the Health Call website, healthcall.live. That's healthcall.live. Hey, and while you're there, drop me a line and let me know what's driving you crazy about healthcare today. I read every message and you'll always get a reply. We're back in just a minute with more of the Health Call Radio Hour on WoWo. You're listening to the Health Call Radio Hour, your regular weekend appointment with top healthcare professionals, where every session is painless and we never keep you waiting. Now back to health and wellness correspondent, Lee Kelso. Let's jump right back into our look at a new law that seems to be working and protecting all of us from surprise medical billing. The No Surprises Act took effect in January of 2022 and so far has blocked over 9 million people from getting a whopper of a medical bill from an out-of-network doctor. Okay, great. Once you get to the hospital, you're protected, it seems. But if you got there in an ambulance... A nasty surprise could still show up in the mailbox. I asked healthcare economics policy analyst Lauren Adler the obvious that question. That's a great question, a and uh, I would say a somewhat egregious uh, exemption from the law. Right, this is. Uh, I saw a survey recently that 16% of bills that patients thought were surprises were from ground ambulances. Uh, right, so this isn't. It's not an uncommon uh, problem here. There's no particularly good reason why Congress exempted ground ambulances. There are political reasons um, why, and a little bit was just there's, you know, I think the thought that there's only so much uh, that we can bite off in this process. The other sort of quirk here of ground ambulances is that uh, most emergency ground ambulance transports in the country are actually delivered by a public sector entity. So your municipality, a fire department, um, that sort of thing. So there was a bit of concern from local governments about how sort of their revenue streams might be affected by federal legislation here. Um, but that's one where I think the sort of socialization and learning process here can, I think, uh, hopefully assuage folks that, uh, that that this can sort of 
honestly redound to the benefit of local governments, um, given that the private companies tend to charge uh, a fair amount more than the, the public sector ambulances do. Yeah, so we're, we're talking about a matter of typically hundreds of dollars in charges as opposed to tens of thousands of dollars in a specialist fee. So there's that difference. I get that. But, you know, the broader a broader issue to discuss when it comes to healthcare and patients may not be real aware of this is private equity. So private investors, corporations coming in and buying up medical practices. Uh, there's a lot of concern. I'm reading a lot from physicians who are complaining that they think this is having a real negative impact on the quality of care that we receive. Uh, what's the Brookings Institute think of all of this? Sure. So it's definitely been a growing trend in, in particular in the specialties that sort of got implicated in this surprise billing debate. So you know, I think it's it's roughly one in five emergency physicians and anesthesiologists work for a private equity company right now. Um, about 10% of the ground ambulance market is private equity. About two-thirds of the air ambulance market is private equity uh, back. So, right, this is a pretty big uh, factor and has been sort of taking over dermatology, ophthalmology, yeah. uh, and gastroenterology more recently. There are, I think, still pretty open questions on the quality of care effects we are starting to get more and more evidence that this is increasing the price of care. So um, there's been a couple studies now that basically when private equity acquires uh, physician practice, that prices tend to go up for people with commercial insurance somewhat substantially, uh, depends a little bit on the specialty. Uh, but we still right now are kind of, I think, trying to figure out what the sort of quality effects are. The only place we've really seen that sort of evidence is in the nursing home space uh, where there is now some preliminary evidence of uh, pretty bad quality effects of private equity takeovers of nursing homes. Um, but that's, that's kind of the one area where we have that, uh, that, that sort of strong, you know, Brookings-style evidence, uh, not from us, but, uh, you know, that kind of good empirical evidence yet. So what is the driver here? If, if I'm running a hospital, why would I outsource operation of my emergency department, a, a key function of my facility? Why would I outsource that to private investors? Money. Uh, first and foremost, it basically, the, the sort of standard story here is that the emergency physician staffing company, the private equity one, will go to the hospital and say, look, I know you used to be paying a subsidy to your emergency physicians or paying them directly. If you let, if you hire me and don't tell me how to bill patients and commercial insurance companies, you don't have to pay that subsidy anymore. Uh, you know, we're better at getting money out of insurance companies and patients than the old company was. So you should hire us. So, right. So the hospital has something to gain uh, in this transaction as well. Uh, so I think that's, that's fundamentally why it's happening. I, I personally think we'll see a, at least a little bit of a reversal of that now that surprise billing is illegal. Uh, but obviously, we're in very preliminary days of, you know, the law's only been in effect for a year so far. Yeah, I get it. They, they don't have that open field to, to bill and try to recover all that income. So I, I get that. As a, as a physician, uh, I, I'm, I'm hearing from a lot of doctors who are, they're, they're near the end of their careers. They want to retire. They're documentation, electronic medical records requirements, all that bureaucracy demands on them has gone up. And they see this selling as to private equity as a way to essentially cash out and can't, can't really blame them. I mean, they've worked hard all their lives. We're kind of, 
is this good for patients? Do we know yet? Is this is this better for patients? So I certainly understand it from the physician's perspective, right? If you're looking at an office-based specialty, you've put your life's work into this and you've built up a lot of value in this practice mm -hmm. and there aren't that many buyers of your practice. I think, you know, I've heard from, from older doctors here that it's just, there aren't as many young doctors who are willing to buy the practice in one place because that used to be kind of the often way you'd, right. you know, transfer the equity to the younger doctors in your practice and, and get money out of it. And now sort of your options are sell to a hospital or sell to private equity. Um, a lot of the doctors I've spoke to even have sort of more negative views of selling to the hospital. Uh, and there's actually a lot of empirical evidence that that has negative effects um, as well. So, uh, you know, I don't that is an important and thinking of what the other option is here. So, right. It may be that selling to private equity raises prices and potentially even reduces quality. But would selling to the hospital have just the same effects is, um, I do think, an important question here. Uh, certainly, do some doctors are going to make the claim that right, it, being bought by private equity allows you to make certain investments um, in your care. And my guess is it does differ somewhat by specialty. You know, certainly if you look to primary care, a lot of the practices are trying to, a lot of the sort of bigger backed practices here are trying to make the claim at least that we're giving a more patient-friendly experience, uh, you know, we'll answer your emails, that sort of uh, thing, which I don't, I don't think you see quite as much in sort of the, the dermatology space. Mm -hmm. And I think you see far less of when you move to the sort of hospital-based uh, specialties like emergency medicine and anesthesia, where I've heard, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of complaints from the doctors themselves that they're sort of forcing non-competes on doctors that sort of harm them. Uh, you know, I think you've heard a few stories from emergency doctors saying that some of these private equity companies, you know, use too many uh, mid-level practitioners like PAs um, rather mm -hmm. than the doctors. And then that may have uh, plausibly at least may have negative uh, effects as well. You know, Lauren is right on this. It's a definite trend. If you find yourself in an emergency department, check the name badge of the person treating you. It may say PA, physician's assistant, or NP, nurse practitioner. These are healthcare professionals who can perform many of the same functions as an MD, but they're paid far less, so it saves money. There's debate about whether these mid-level providers have the same degree of experience and wisdom as an MD. There's some evidence that ERs staffed by mid-level team members lead to more misdiagnoses of rare conditions and a slightly higher risk of readmission. On the other hand, hospital staffing companies argue mid-level providers avoid staff shortages and ensure that when you face an emergency, someone's there to care for you. Just when a wave of baby boomers will need more care, more doctors are stepping into retirement. And there's projections we could see a shortage of 130,000 physicians in the coming years. People a lot smarter than me are trying to figure out what's the right way to handle this, so we'll keep an eye on it and let you know what they decide about how to face the healthcare staffing crisis that's staring us in the face. All right, we have a lot more to come as we look at some chemicals we put on our face and whether wrinkle creams are just one big hoax. That's in the next half hour, so stay tuned for more of the Health Call Radio Hour here on WoWo.
podcast by Federated Media.